0: Good morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Raymond Johnson. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm so thankful that you've chosen to worship with us today. We typically, as was mentioned earlier, have guest cards underneath the seat in front of you. They're at the back of the room today, but in particular, if you did not come with a Bible and you need one, I would encourage you to just get up and go grab one now because you will need one for the entirety of the sermon. I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bible, to turn with me to the book of Jonah. Just keep it open the whole time. We'll have it It'll be a much more enjoyable time as we study God's Word, if you're able to look there with me. We're in the midst of a series of sermons studying this book. Today we find ourselves focusing in particular on chapter 3, but as we have been doing for the past few weeks, we're going to read the entire book as we begin to just continue to situate ourselves in the narrative. And if you are a person who likes to write in your Bible or underline in your Bible, I would encourage you to just underline or circle or put a box around great city every time you see it in the narrative. Jonah writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. And they came to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, "'I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land.' Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, "'What is this that you have done?' For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, "'What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us?' For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, "'Pick me up and hurl me into the sea.' Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out of the dry land, out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, The message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe... And from, turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, "'O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country?' "'That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, "'for I knew that you are a gracious God, "'and merciful, slow to anger, "'and abounding in steadfast love, "'and relenting from disaster. "'Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, "'for it is better for me to die than to live.' "'And the Lord said, "'Do you do well to be angry?' "'Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city "'and made a booth for himself. "'He sat under it in the shade "'till he should see what would become of the city.' Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. Father, we know and regularly remind ourselves that the enemy will seek to snatch the good word from us, to distract us from giving our attention to your word. We pray that you would help us to resist, that we would focus our mind, our eyes, our ears on your word right now, that we might be conformed into the image of Christ, and for those who are not Christians, that you might cause them to be born again by the spirit of Christ. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. So we pray that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts. And Father, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of God revealed in Scripture. Father, we thank you for this word. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. In the book Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, Jean Valjean is released from a long prison term after stealing a loaf of bread. And after that release, he finds unexpected shelter in the home of a kind and hospitable bishop. But the old temptations of his life proved too great for Jean Valjean. So while the household is asleep one night, he steals some of the bishop's silver and runs off with it. When Jean Valjean is later caught red-handed with the silver in his possession, he is brought back to the bishop by the authorities who were informed by the bishop that he has actually given the silver to the ex-convict as a gift. And then he asks the police to remove their hands from him to allow Jean Valjean to go free immediately. Jean Valjean is immediately mesmerized by the gesture. And he looks at the bishop with this indescribable expression as the bishop then proceeds to take two candlesticks from the mantelpiece and says before the police that some more of the silver had been forgotten by his friend when he left. Hugo writes, "'My friend,' says the bishop, "'before you go away, here are your candlesticks. "'You forgot them, take them.' "'He went to the mantelpiece and took the two candlesticks "'and handed them to Jean Valjean. "'Jean Valjean was trembling all over. "'He took the two candlesticks distractedly "'with a bewildered expression. "'Now,' said the bishop, "'go in peace. "'By the way, my friend, when you come again, "'you needn't come through the garden. "'You can always come and go by the front door.' It is only closed with a latch, day or night. After the police left, the bishop admonished Jean Valjean, saying, Do not forget ever that you promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of any such promise, stood dumbfounded. The bishop had stressed these words as he spoke them. He continued solemnly, Jean Valjean, my brother. You no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. The merciful act made such an impression upon Jean Valjean that the troubled convict left indelibly changed forever. Having been the recipient of an unspeakable mercy, he then becomes the benefactor of one merciful act after another to others in the narrative. He rescues a destitute and disadvantaged woman turned prostitute. He saves a man about to be crushed by a cart and later finds employment for him. He protects the woman's daughter from a situation of child slavery and treats her as his own granddaughter. Mercy had worked a powerful transformation in his life and character. And one would think that the mercy extended to Jonah and the intestines of the fish would have had similar effects as we move into the second half of the book of Jonah. But we observe that that was not so, or at least its effects were short-lived. Notice first restoration and recommissioning. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and said to it. I spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Careful readers notice that chapter 3 In chapter 3, the plot rewinds and begins all over again. And you'll see this if you look at chapter 1, verse 1. Just keep your finger there. Some of you don't even need to turn the page, but keep both places in mind. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The verses in chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 and chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 are nearly identical. But by paralleling the book's opening remarks, almost word for word, the author skillfully conveys to us the idea that Jonah is now being offered a new beginning. When verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Friends, at this point, it should be incredibly comforting to us that God restored Jonah even after he had fled from the presence of the Lord. And God recommissioned Jonah to meaningful service, even while he was still a work in progress. If you're familiar with the rest of the story at all, then you know exactly what I mean. After realizing that he did not want to die after all, he softened in the belly of the fish but hardened at the repentance of the people that he thought unworthy of God's forgiveness. He finally obeyed by going to Nineveh, but he sinned when grumbling for having to do it. He was pleased with God when God was comforting him and brought the type of providence into his life that he wanted to receive. But he was angry with God, angry enough to die, when God's providence took a different path and plan than he anticipated. God restored Jonah even after he had sinned by fleeing. And that is good news for you and for me. Perhaps you're here this morning hearing the narrative of Jonah for the first time, and you have thought as you were coming in here today that your sin is so gross, that your sin is so heinous, that your sin has been so frequent, that your sin is of such a kind, so bad, that God would never forgive you. And even if God would be so willing to condescend to forgive even you, He would never be willing to restore you to anything meaningful in your life. Friend, if you're here today and you think that, then you are thinking completely wrong. Jonah, God's prophet, fled from God's presence and wanted others to kill him so bad so that he wouldn't have to obey God's command. And still God forgave him and saved him on the brink of death. When he had finally hit rock bottom because of his sin. When he had nowhere else to run and nothing else that he could do. God forgave him and God saved him when he remembered the Lord. And he will do the same for you today. If you acknowledge, chapter 2, verse 9, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation from death. Salvation from sin. Salvation to life. Salvation to obedience. When his life was fainting away, Jonah remembered the Lord. And he remembered that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And God forgave him and saved him. And friend, he will forgive you and he will save you if you proclaim the same today. That God is gracious and merciful and steadfast. That he is gracious and merciful and steadfast with his love, a love that we know that has been decisively revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, who did for us what Jonah, the reluctant prophet, could never do. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of the earth after suffering on the cross for our sin as our substitute so that we might be forgiven of our sins if we would repent of our sins, turn away from our sins, and place our faith in him. Grace and mercy are cross-bought gifts by Jesus Christ. And they give us confidence to draw near no matter what sin we have committed. Believer, if your life is like mine, there are times that you are incredibly discouraged because of your sin. And you think regularly if people only knew. Friend, I am here to tell you that God knows. And the message that saved you is the same message that keeps you saved. And it is the same message that you need right now to give you confidence to continue to approach the throne mercifully and with confidence that God will forgive you if you repent an unbeliever we are here to tell you that if you're not a christian that you need to know that salvation belongs to the lord jesus christ who gave his life as a ransom for the people that he so loved and that you even you can be forgiven of your sin today we just ask you and encourage you to come and find one of our members after the service so that we can show you where it says that in the bible This message of repentance and belief so that you might see it with us in the scripture. A message that we will see more as we continue to go through this sermon. Just stay with me. God restored Jonah and he recommissioned Jonah to meaningful service even while he was still a work in progress. Believer, as we're reading the book of Jonah, it teaches us that it is possible for God to use you even after you have failed miserably. And sinned horrifically in your life. I want that to sink in for you. That it is possible. For God to use you meaningfully. Though you have sinned heinously. And deserve wrath. Even while you are a work in progress. And that is good news. For you and for me because we live in a world that is looking to cancel absolutely every single one of us when we say or do or type the wrong thing one time. Fellow members of Christ Church Westchester, this is something that you need to pay special attention to, especially as we approach our members meeting this evening. In Scripture, the goal of discipline is never punitive, though the church is punishing someone for their sin as though the church is punishing someone for their sin. On the contrary, the goal of discipline is restorative, to win the brother or sister back. Paul said that the reason for putting an unrepentant sinner out of the fellowship is so that their spirit might be saved on the last day. Discipline is used by God to awaken someone to their need for God. And in Jonah's case, he was greatly helped by the love of God that was shown to him through the discipline that he experienced in the belly of the fish. His sin was not condoned and yet God did not treat him as if he had, uh, he had no sin that was worthy of being dealt with. When a whole congregation makes a very clear statement that someone's sin is real and it is unrepentant and is worthy of being dealt with, That follower is being set apart, and in that case, the people are saying that they cannot condone the sin. And the gospel is clarified in those moments. It's clarified because it tells us what is true and what is right, what is wrong, what a believer should live and do. Church discipline, like the discipline of the prophet, uh, the prophet experience, causes the person to sit up and take notice and even to repent of their sin, just like it should cause all of us to take notice of the sin in our lives. Because the reality is is that all of us, when we're having to deal with church discipline, experience the same uncertainty. If people only knew. If they saw the sin in my life, when will I be the person that is brought before the congregation? And yes, it is true that everybody in here is a wayward sinner. But church discipline is exercised on people who will not repent of their sin. Not of people who know that they're sinners and are trying to put their sin to death. It is a restorative step designed to purify the church, to honor Christ, to win back an erring brother or sister. Thankfully, Jonah teaches us that we should not assume that the past dictates the future as God's grace interrupts Jonah's cycles of sin. These verses are nearly identical and yet there is still some important difference between chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 and chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. In chapter 1 verse 2, God tells Jonah to call out against Nineveh for their evil has come up before him. In chapter 3 verse 2, God says that Jonah is to now take a very specific message to the people. Call out against Nineveh the message that I tell you. The words emphasize the divine origin of Jonah's proclamation. He did not have a word that came from his own understanding or his own personal study. He had a word that came directly from God. And the message he communicates is not his own. It is God's message. But unlike the first encounter, Jonah obeys God and his command this time. Verse 3. So Jonah arose And he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Previously, Jonah hears God's command. He rose and he fled. A fact that the author takes pain to emphasize over and over again by mentioning three times that he had fled from the presence of the Lord. But now Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And that compliance is, verse 3, according to the word of the Lord. Sounding just like what John teaches us. This is how you will know that you are one of my disciples. If you keep my commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, fellow believer in here. Are you looking at God's word and you see that his word tells you to do something, but you refuse to do it and then still dare to call yourself a believer? It is not possible for someone to look at God's word and say, it tells me to do this, but I'm going to do the opposite of what it says. And actually be a Christian. It is possible to disobey God's word, but we cannot reject the clear teaching of God's word. I don't know all of your lives, but that is a question we should ponder right now. Are we looking at his scripture and saying, I will not do that? John arose, he did it in accordance with the word of the Lord, but at this point in the story, there's an interruption halfway through verse 3 with some new circumstantial detail. Verse 3, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. You may have noticed that while we're reading and rereading Jonah the past few weeks that Nineveh is called a great city in four places in the book of Jonah. The great city belongs to the Lord, the God who made heaven and the sea and the dry land. The Lord owns absolutely everything, including the great city of Nineveh, the staunchest of his people's foes, whose sins have come up before him. And now through this prophet, his message will finally come to this city, even though it is a three days journey. People are confused all over the place about what this verse means, but it is not meant to describe the size of the city or the length of Jonah's stay in the city. It is used figuratively to describe the long distance that Jonah would have to travel to the city because it is a a city that is a great city because it is very far away when Jonah begins his nearly 600-mile trek from Jerusalem to Nineveh. And in the ancient world, that would typically take about a month. What does Jonah do when he finally arrives at the big apple of Assyria? Verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah had not gone very far into the city. Verse 4. About a day's journey before he began preaching the worst sermon ever. Preaching a sermon all about judgment. Even though he had been a recipient of mercy. Preaching a sermon all about God's condemnation. Even though he had experienced forgiveness, preaching about how God would bring wrath, even though he knew God to be a faithful creator. We see it in the, in the text, chapter one, verse nine. He says, "I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land." Chapter four, verse two. "O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country?" This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Though he had been a recipient of great mercy, all he preaches to his enemies is judgment. He preaches a bogus message of wrath, even though he had received kindness from God, which is incredibly surprising that he preaches this, mer- this message that is so short, because after having focused so much attention on God's efforts to actually get Jonah to, Jonah to Nineveh, his activity there is recorded with remarkable brevity, and his prophetic ministry is exceptionally concise. Verse 4. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. If you have your Bible, I want you to flip over with me to Matthew chapter 12 very quickly. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. And as we observed last time, notice how Jonah is described in the passage. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of the Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater then Solomon is here. As Jesus is preaching, there are these cities that are not responding in repentance, though they have the greatest preacher the world has ever known preaching to them repentance and faith, belief in the arrival of the kingdom of God. They respond and there is judgment that comes upon them because they are not soft to God's word. Jonah, though he does not preach a complete message of mercy, does preach against these people that judgment is coming, that judgment of God has arrived, that judgment of God is near. And in this way, Jonah is a sign against these people, reminding them that God judges sin. He judged it in Jonah's life, and he will judge it in their life, and he preaches it against them. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall perish. A brief pronouncement of imminent destruction. Only five words in Hebrew full of religious significance. 40 days is associated with the flood. Moses' stay on the mountain. Elijah's journey to Horeb. All great moments of revelation in the Bible. The judgment of God on sin. The law of God for his people. The remnant of God among rebels. And the word is used to describe the com- that word used to describe the coming overthrow also means reformation, a change for the better, as it simultaneously recalls the episode of the judgment of God that came on Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapter 19. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew the cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up to the smoke of like the smoke of a furnace so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Jonah is not using any word accidentally here. Although Nineveh was not overthrown, it did experience a turnaround when Jonah's words, yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown, put the fear of God in the Ninevites. And at this point in the story, we would think that Jonah had learned all the lessons that God was seeking to teach him. When he becomes the most successful prophet, that we find in the Old Testament. But as we move ever closer to chapter 4, we begin to understand Jonah, just like ourselves, has many more depths and layers to him than we might think, as he tries to understand the knowledge of God and God's way in the world as he takes this message to Nineveh. Restoration and recommissioning. Notice second, the repentance, the repentance of the unrighteous. Look with me in verse 5 of chapter 3. And the people of Nineveh believed God Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What is the response of the people of Nineveh to the preaching of Jonah? Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Belief and acceptance in a word absolute and total repentance as they respond to the word of the prophet. And the text implies that they respond absolutely immediately. So his proclamation is followed immediately by a description of their reaction. Verse five, they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. All of that are common means in the ancient world of expressing grief and humility and penitence, the hallmarks of true repentance. And the response was unanimous. Verse five, from the greatest of them To the least of them, no class, no group of people, no one in society felt that they were beyond the need for repentance. Absolutely everyone humbled themselves before God, including, verse 6, the king. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and ashes friend do you think of yourself as above repentance or that you don't need to repent that perhaps your actions have not been sinful enough to merit or require repentance by drawing our attention to the king and focusing on the king the author adds a detail to this general picture that no one was excluded from the command that absolutely everyone when the message is preached is on the same ground whether they are high or low The king stood on the same footing as all of the other people that were his subjects. Everyone needed to hear the message of repentance. And he adds a detail to the general picture of verse 5 that reinforces the observation that the inhabitants of Nineveh, from the greatest of the least, truly repented of their evil since even the king arose and put off and put on and sat down before God. All of the things that we talk about that characterize a genuinely Christian life arising and being startled because of the message of repentance, putting off an old way and putting on a new way, and finally sitting down and focusing their attention on God. Friends, the pagan king was more immediately responsive to God's word in the narrative than the Jewish prophet. The king responds at the first preaching of God's word when Jonah turned and rebelled from receiving God's word, and his response was accompanied by fervent prayer and earnest fasting and mourning in sackcloth. Verse seven, and he issued a proclamation and he published it throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. God had to get Jonah away and alone before he would, chapter 2, verse 1, pray. But the king prays in his kingdom before his subjects, and he demands of absolutely everyone genuine repentance. Verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king knows what many of us refuse to acknowledge. That no outward show of piety will be enough. That Nineveh will not be delivered from her destruction simply by doing religious things. Believer, I wonder if that describes your Christian faith this morning. That the doing of religious things makes you feel safe before God. Unbeliever, I wonder if that describes you here today. That the doing of Christian things might actually bring mercy into your life. We're here to tell you that no genuine display of piety, no matter how sincere, is enough to save us from the wrath of God. Only pleading the mercy of God in Christ is enough. The king knows what many of us often forget. Only a radical transformation of heart and behavior would offer any hope of reprieve, even though, like the pagan sea captain and his crew, the king and his subjects acknowledge that God is absolutely free to do whatever he pleases. Verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. They realize all too well that pious actions and fervent prayers can never merit or guarantee divine forgiveness. That God is under, under no obligation to forgive anyone apart from them trusting in his covenant promises. And yet there remains a hope that he may look upon them with mercy and turn away from his fierce anger. The king's repentance and call to all of his people to turn from violence teaches us something about true repentance. He didn't know whether God would spare them or destroy them, but regardless, they are to stop doing evil. Just as God's love for us is unconditional, our repentance needs to be unconditional as well. We don't turn from God to earn favor or secure salvation. That is done for us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And we turn because we love Him, Him who first loved us. In chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, the response of the Ninevites is presented in terms of what God actually expected of His people, but frequently did not receive a responsive repentance. And the repentance of the Ninevites in Jonah acts as a foil for Jonah and the people of Israel. Perhaps you're not familiar with the term foil, but a foil is actually a literary term to describe a character or an event to contrast it with another character or event or element in the story. And in our story, Nineveh behaves as a foil against Jonah. The Assyrian capital, the enemies of Jonah, the people who are mighty and destructive, who are actually known for being great sinners are more responsive to the word of the Lord than the prophet of God who comes from the people of God who lived in the land of God where God's presence dwelt. And the serious repentance serves as a marvelous contrast for the lack of repentance that eventually becomes evident in the prophet's life. Since Jonah represents Israel, the author is using Nineveh as a foil to indict absolutely everyone in Israel. The fact of the story helps us see that even though this Great city is renowned for great sin. They are responsive to this great God and this message of great wrath. And they hope that there might be a great relenting from this great God. And in this way, Assyria's repentance actually rebukes the lack of compliance among God's people and how they have not been responsive to God's word. Friends, I wonder if that actually describes the church of the Lord Jesus Christ sometimes. That there are people who would not claim to be the people of God, who seem to be more more responsive to Christian things than Christian people. And they often sometimes live more moral lives than we do. And it shames us. The lack of responsiveness to God's word. We see it and refuse to do it. Or we refuse to do it because it's harder than we want it to be. What we see in the book of Jonah is that God is using the pagans to shame his people. Especially when we consider that Israel alone among the nations was to be the apple of God's eye. Hear what the scripture says about Israel and how they were to live in front of the people. And it is no different for the church today. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 6. Keep these commandments and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all of the peoples. Who when they hear of all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Or again in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 57. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all of his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God, day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and cause the cause of his people, Israel, as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, that there is no other. Therefore, let your heart be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in all of his statutes and keeping his commandments as it is this day. They will know that he is the Lord our God when we keep his commandments. Yet tragically, what we see across the entirety of Holy Scripture is that there is abundant evidence for the people of God being unfaithful that they have received these good words. And Israel's lack of obedience condemns it. Because it characterizes our lives as well. Their obedience was to signify that God was among them. What their disobedience proves is that they actually don't know the God that they profess to believe in. So when we arrive at chapter 3 verse 5. And see the sudden flowering up of this important theme occurring over the span of a few verses of repentance. We see that the author is trying to draw our attention to something in particular. What is repentance? You confessed it earlier. Do you believe it? We believe Repentance and faith are sacred duties, as well as inseparable graces. That means you can't have one without the other. You can't say you have faith and being unwilling to repent. You can't be a person who repents without having faith. They are produced in our souls, not by things that we do, but by the regenerating Spirit of God, who convinces us of our guilt, danger, helplessness, and the way of salvation by Christ. And they consist of turning to God with genuine sorrow. What does genuine sorrow look like? Confession and a petition for mercy. Not feeling bad for the consequences that you're experiencing. Not crying because it's going to be painful in the days ahead. Receiving heartily the Lord Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And relying on Jesus alone... As the only and all sufficient Savior. Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby we are inwardly humbled and we are visibly transformed and reformed before other people, which is exactly what we see in the narrative. They are inwardly humbled. God's judgment is coming. So we will visibly manifest that we have been humbled, we will tear our clothes. We will put on ashes and sackcloth. We will call out mightily to God. We won't even let our cattle eat. And I don't even know what that means. We won't let any of those things happen because we recognize that we deserve the judgment of God. And in the New Testament, from the Gospel of Matthew all the way through the book of Revelation, repentance is the urgent and indispensable theme that is kept at the very front of the Gospel message. Repentance is the first word of the gospel message. Matthew tells us that it is the first word of the first sermon Jesus ever preached. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was the first sermon, first word of the first sermon Jesus ever preached. And it was also the first sermon, first word of the first sermon his forerunner, John the Baptist, preached. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as if it wasn't good enough being the first word of the first sermon for Jesus and the first word of the first sermon for John the Baptist, it was also the first word of the first sermons for his disciples that he would send out. Mark chapter 6, verse 12. You should go out and proclaim to them that people should repent. Friends, the word of the gospel is repent. And this is why when Christ comes to give his great commission to go and to preach, the scripture tells us that that great commission consists Of preaching repentance. Luke chapter 24, verse 46. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, beginning from the people that should have bottled it from the beginning. This is the message that he tells them to bring. Preach of Christ's suffering. Preach of Christ's crucifixion. Preach of Christ's resurrection. And preach of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name. Because Acts chapter 17 verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance is the first word of the gospel. It is the content of our commission as Christ's followers. But it is not uncommon for Christians to think of repentance as an overbearing message as a confrontational message that is a last resort rather than a first word. Because when we're calling other people to repentance, we're implying something very specific, that they have something to repent of. Friend, if you're here today, whether you believe it or not or know it or not, we're here to tell you that you have something to repent of. Sin. Sin is not being or doing what God requires in His Word. And the Scripture tells us that absolutely everybody in this room has not been and has not done what God requires in His Word. That everybody in here is a sinner. That everybody in here needs the forgiveness of sins. That everybody in this room must repent. That that repentance must not only be a verbal confirmation. That that repentance must be a verbal confirmation and a transformed life. You can profess to have repented and live a life that demonstrates for everyone else that you are not a truly repentant person. And you can try to do all of the repentant moral things that you want. You can be good. You can give money to the church. You can be here every week. You could read the whole Bible every day. You could do good things all of the time and never merit God's favor unless you repent and trust in the Savior. That simultaneously, you must outwardly profess And be visibly reformed as you do both things. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not a last resort when we don't know what else to say. It is what we are actually to call people to do. Repent and believe. Turn and trust. Hope in Christ and be saved. Give up your wicked way and put on the way of salvation. Throw off sin and put on the new way of life. Do not live like you used to live. Live a new way that trusts in Jesus alone. Friend, we're here to tell you today that you can do that and it is incredibly simple. In fact, Stephen spoke better than maybe he even knew for the sermon that we complicate it all the time by saying that there are all sorts of things that you have to do to prove it to us. But it is so unbelievably simple. Trust in Jesus. It is a profoundly simple message. Believe that you deserve judgment and plead the work of Christ. And he will forgive you of your sins. And believer here today, have you lost sight of how glorious that message was for you when you first believed? When you felt how astonishing it was that God would forgive even you. After all of the sin that you had committed, the things people knew about and people don't know about even today. That God would show you favor when you repented. It is not a last resort. It is the first word because this message, though it makes us incredibly unpopular, leads to blessing and hope. It is the way to prosperity. Blessing and prosperity and flourishing and joy are all attached to the message of repentance. In verse 10. Restoration and recommissioning. The repentance of the unrighteous. Notice third, the relenting of the righteous God. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said that He would do to them. And He did not do it. The theme of repentance, which dominates verse 9, continues here with the repetition of the verbs repent and relent. As a result of the penitent actions of the people of Nineveh, God relents from punishing them as he has threatened that he would do. But unfortunately, there's a lot of ambiguity here in this word relent for us in the English language. And it makes it really hard for us to understand what is actually taking place. Did God change his mind? Did God say he would do one thing and do another? Did God reward somebody because of what they did in their life? And would he reward us because of what we do in our lives? The answer to all of that is no. The scripture is very clear. God didn't change his mind. God acted consistently with his character when he relented. God did what he always promised that he would do when people repented. He turned from pouring out his wrath and he showed steadfast love and mercy. And Jonah knows that to be the case, which is why he says in verse 2 of chapter 4, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God has promised us how he will respond to the repentant. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if any of you do sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, only, but the sins of the whole world. The English word here confuses us, but the theme is crystal clear. God did not change what he said he was going to do God acted like he always said that he was going to act toward people who genuinely repent. And it reveals to us that God, this faithful God, is both gracious and merciful. Things that Jonah conveniently left out of his message. The unchanging character of God is actually what gives us confidence when responding to God. Friends, perhaps you're a believer here and you've been fearful because of the way you've acted. The message of repentance and the unchanging character of God is your hope. The unchanging God promises that if you come to him afresh in repentance, he will never cast you out. And that should inspire praise and thankfulness and generosity and evangelism and service and acts of kindness in our hearts because God has not treated us as our sins deserve. The unchanging character of God underlies the message of repentance and it teaches us that he will always act this way as he did in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, so he does in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. He responds to the repentant with mercy. He forgives repentant sinners. And all of this matters because as we've been studying the book of Jonah, one thing is abundantly clear, that Israel and Jonah had an uncommitted heart They're like the waves of the sea that Jonah was on. They're driven and tossed about. But they are a people who have turned aside. So when God relents in verse 10, He's setting Himself in direct contrast to them. He is not somebody who will not always act faithful and true to His character. Israel changes. God does not change. Israel has turned away. God will never turn away from His repentant people. Their allegiance is fickle. God's allegiance to His covenant people is faithful. Friends, I wonder if that characterizes you and me. Are you a shifty person in your belief in God? Do you redirect your allegiance to what you think will give you what you want? Do you serve God when it looks like there's a clear benefit for you? But when there's not a very clear benefit for you, or it will cost you more than you want to give, do you refuse? Do you love God only when it obviously will turn out for your favor? When God relents, he is setting himself in direct contrast to a changing people. And in so doing, he shows us that Israel's uncommitted heart is what is being rebuked. They're part in and part out. They are delinquent, but God is steadfast and he never changes. He remains, as Jonah's confession teaches us, patient, long-suffering, loving, and merciful. And mercy is the message here. Mercy worked a powerful transformation in Jean Valjean's life and character. And one would think at this point in the narrative that the mercy extended to Jonah in the intestines of the fish would have produced similar effects in his life. That he would have gone about declaring a message of mercy. That he would have been so happy to actually be alive. That he would have been unbelievably thrilled that though he deserved to die, he was able to walk around and speak to other people. That he would be able to proclaim, though you deserve death, this is the God who gives life Trust in Him. Yet we see that though He had received mercy, He softened pretty quickly. Just like many of us in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the effects are terribly short-lived in our lives. We come under conviction, and we promise, I will never do that again. I swear, if you get me out of this, I will never do that again. And then Monday happens. We are an incredibly fickle people. Unfaithful to God and unfaithful to one another. How quickly we turn on each other when we don't like any one thing. And like the world, we cancel everybody just like that. Because they forgot to calculate everything in their life incredibly carefully all of the time. Jonah is teaching us that God is nothing like that, that he is unchanging, that he is forgiving, that he is steadfast, that he is merciful, that he is not fickle, that he is patient, that he is loving, that he is kind. And this narrative, though it doesn't tell us a lot about what Jonah preaches, screams to us with his life to trust in this type of God, to believe in this type of God. Even though Jonah doesn't understand and really doesn't like what God is doing, it teaches us that the God of Jonah is the great God. He did make the sea and the dry land. He is the one who made the heavens and the earth. He is the creator. He deserves all allegiance because he is merciful. And if he was merciful to Jonah, and he was merciful to you and to me, then why do we hold back allegiance? And why are we so slow to obey? Why are you so slow to obey? Why are you so slow to be generous? Why are you so slow to reconcile with one another and forgive? Why are you so slow to turn away? Jonah is telling us that this God is the great God. And even though Jonah was more interested in watching the destruction of his neighbors... And working for their salvation. We see that God worked a great salvation among these people. When the message of repentance and judgment was made clear. It forced him to preach to them. And even as he preached to them. We find in the great prophetic preaching found here. That that message is still being proclaimed today. And in that message there is the compassion of God. That when he makes us aware of the sinfulness of our sin and what it deserves, we are being confronted with mercy. Friends, trust the merciful God. He will save. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the preaching of the prophet Jonah. And one greater than Jonah has arrived. And he will rise up on the last day and he will condemn those who heard of this mercy and forgiveness. But like in Jesus' days, We're too hardened to actually repent and believe in it. Father, with every opportunity that we have to be here in a service of worship just like this, we are confronted with the fact that we must respond, that we are responding to the gospel message. And with every opportunity that we have here to be in a service of worship like this, we are confronted with what is before us if we do not trust in Jesus Christ. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Father, we pray that what we would experience is not the overthrow of destruction, but the reformation that changes us not only verbally but visibly in our lives and before all other people. That like this king who goes unnamed because it doesn't matter what his name is, what matters is that he repents that we would be bold in our repentance, that we, like this king, would humble ourselves, even if that means we have to humble ourselves before all of the people who know us, and that we would be quick to repent and to ask for forgiveness, and that we would demonstrate even now, visibly, that we are recipients of this type of mercy as we sing courageously. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.